Uh, let's take time once more to pause and uh, direct our hearts and minds toward the throne of our Father. Let's pray together. Lord God, you have shown us over and over in the Sermon on the Mount how you are after our hearts. The inside of us, Lord, needs your Spirit's cleansing and cleaning. Lord, none of us have arrived. We are still in a place where we have places to go in our walk with you. So I pray this morning, Lord, that as you speak to us once again concerning our hearts, uh, that we would have ears to hear, that you would keep us alert to what you are saying to us in terms of our motives and our intents. And Father, that this would be a redemptive hour, that you would uh, bring us further along in our sanctification for your name's sake. And Father... Uh, I pray that as we walk out of this place later today and into the week, that the word that you will speak to us would continue to ring in our spiritual ears and be on our hearts and on our tongues. Uh, These things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So in the world of jazz music, uh, musicians will play uh, what is called the head, or the melody of a song. And then after the melody has been stated, they will then branch out into solos, which are improvised explorations that are based on the chordal structure of the song. Well, if we can consider Matthew 6.1 as the head, or the main melody, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, then Matthew 6, 2 to 6, 4 is the initial solo, taking its cues from Matthew 6, 1. So that passage is the first variation on the theme that is stated in Matthew 6, 1. And today's passage, Matthew 6, 5 to 6, 8, is the second variation or solo Uh, based on what Jesus has said in Matthew 6.1. Now, in many ways, today's sermon has a great deal of overlap with last week's sermon, if you were here last week. So although Jesus now changes his topic, moving now from giving to the needy that we looked at last week to praying, he uses a lot of the same phrases and a lot of the same language that we heard him use last week. For example... In this new passage, Jesus will use the word hypocrite again, as he did last time, and also the word secret, and he will preach again on the idea of being seen by others. And he will also use the phrase, they have received their reward, like he did in last week's passage. So there's lots of overlap here. So important to Jesus Christ is this idea of our motives when we give to the needy and when we pray and when we fast. So important is this idea of our motives that he spends significant time on each topic in turn using similar language in each case. And I would say that if these issues are important to Jesus, 
then we best give him our ears and our hearts and listen to him as the Father has commanded us to do. Now, as it was last week when Jesus simply assumed that we will give to the needy, so remember in that passage it was when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy, so it is this week with the issue of prayer. In verse 5, Jesus begins our passage by saying what? When you pray. He assumes that we as his disciples will pray. We are a praying people. It's not when you pray. It's, or sorry, it's not if you pray. It's when you pray. Now, for his first century Jewish audience, who were gathered around him that day on the mountain as he preached his sermon, they had set times every day for prayer. Three times each day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And along with those set times for prayer, Jews in the day of Jesus also had a variety of different mealtime prayers. And they were also to pray particular prayers for occasions like approaching the place where a miracle had taken place. There was a specific prayer for that. Or when they heard a clap of thunder, they were to pray another prayer. Or upon seeing a shooting star, there was a prayer for that as well. When you built a home, there was a prescribed prayer. Uh, when there was an earthquake, there was another prayer. And so on and so forth. So Jesus certainly assumed that his audience would be praying very regularly, and he assumes that of us as well. He says, when you pray, you must not be like who? Like the hypocrites. Last week we pointed out that the hypocrite, in this context of Jesus, was the spiritual play actor. The person who pretends to be pious in religious things, but who is actually not. And the hypocrite pretends this way with the goal of gaining human applause in order to feed his or her own ego. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Why? What does the hypocrite do, Jesus? He says, They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, in his commentary on this verse, it's a great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Charles Quarles argues that the original Greek construction here should probably be rendered with the following sense. After said hypocrites have positioned themselves in the synagogues and street corners, then they love to pray. One more time. After the hypocrites have positioned themselves in the synagogues and street corners. Then they love to pray. Implication 
They don't love to pray unless they are positioned publicly in the synagogues and on the street corners. The idea here, says Quarles, is that these people love prayer only when they pray in the posture and in the location in which they may call the most attention to themselves. They position themselves in the synagogue, says Jesus. The synagogue was a place of community worship, but it was also a hub for community life almost like a community center in many ways. Synagogues are places with lots of human traffic. The hypocrite purposely would choose the synagogue to pray so that he would be able to take a very public posture and be seen praying. Jesus here gets to a very common tendency amongst us. And likewise, he says, the hypocrite positions himself on the street corners. Now, the, the Greek behind the English text suggests on broad streets, on thoroughfares that would have lots of human traffic passing by. The hypocrite specifically walks to these places to pray so that he'll be noticed praying. There's a New Testament theologian named Joachim Jeremias who has pointed out that a person could deliberately time his or her arrival at such a broad street to coincide with the afternoon prayer time that happened at 3 p.m. every day. Oh, imagine that. I just happened to arrive here. At this thoroughfare, as luck would have it, 3 p.m., just in time for the daily prayer. I guess I'll just have to pray here. Jesus says there's an overarching motive. We need to notice this motive in the hypocrites that do this. He's after our motives. There's a motive in these people that he's described who deliberately position themselves to pray in the synagogues and street corners. And the motive is, notice very carefully, that they may be seen by others. Notice that very carefully. Again, we need to point out here, just to be very careful with the text, there is nothing inherently wrong with taking a public position When you pray, just so we're clear on that, there's nothing inherently wrong with praying in public. Daniel did it. Ezra did it. Moses and Jesus did it as well. Praying in public, per se, is not the issue. The issue, again, is... What is our motive in doing so? You see the difference? What's our motive, really? And Jesus right now is calling each of us to examine ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit. What is our motive? Here in the text, the motive is to be seen by others. If your motive 
when you pray publicly, whether in a church service like this one or at a small group meeting or on Wednesday nights or before a family meal or wherever, if you check yourself and examine yourself thoroughly and you find in the end that your motive is to keep both eyes fixed immovably on the God to whom you are praying. If your motive in praying publicly is to only bring devotion and gratitude to God as you focus the whole of your being on Him, if you can legitimately say, when I pray in public, I am totally and utterly oblivious to everything except the God to whom I am praying. If you can say that with all sincerity and with genuineness before God, then, my friend, you don't need to listen to the rest of this sermon. You can go and take an early lunch. And I don't see anybody moving. So for the rest of us, then, Jesus has something important to say. Let's listen to him. I want to say that there is a way to pray in public. Listen carefully. There's a way to pray in public where love of prayer and love of the God you're praying to is not as much the focus. The focus instead, as one prays, is really on self. Being noticed for how pious one is. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, being anxious to have a reputation as a man or woman of prayer. Ouch. There is a way of praying in public where glory to God is redirected so that it's actually about glory to self. There is a way of praying in public where one eye is on your own reputation and the other eye is on the human crowd and neither eye is on the God who you are addressing. There is a way of praying in public where it's about performance to a human audience. Now, this would be prayer that includes what Don Carson has called acceptable cliches, appropriate sentiments, sonorous tones, and well-pitched fervency, all to win human approval. Instead of it being about conversation with Almighty God done in the presence of Almighty God with the focus on Almighty God. There is a way of doing our public acts of piety that is self-oriented and far from God-oriented. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, friends, I, for one, am all too aware, especially as a public guy, in the church, I am all too well aware of my own vulnerability to the pitfalls that I've just 
sort of outlined there. And I would bet that I'm not alone in this. So I have to examine myself, first of all. What is my motive when I do public acts of righteousness, as Jesus calls them in verse 1? What is your motive? That is the question that Jesus is asking us. It's important to him, and thus it should be also to us. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They have received their reward. If it was human approval or human acclaim that was desired by the one praying, then he or she has it. Acclaim was the reward that was being sought. Therefore, that will be the totality of the reward for the act of piety. There will be no further reward coming from God, including, I would add, God answering such self-focused, prideful prayers. As Dan Doriani puts it so memorably, this is one to take home, if a prayer is blind to God, then God is blind to that prayer. If a prayer is blind to God, then God is blind to that prayer. Let's go now to verse 6. Jesus says, here's the contrast. But when you pray, disciples, He's talking to his disciples. When you pray, what? Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now concentrate for a minute on that word room in this verse. The word room here is very interesting looking at the original Greek text. The word referred specifically to a room on the inside of a building that had no window to the outside of the house and also no door to the outside of the house. This could be an inner storeroom of some kind or a private inner chamber of some kind. Or one commentator has suggested sometimes they had rooms on the inside of a house hidden so that an escaping king could come and stay in that room and wouldn't be found there. When we say prayer closet, you've probably heard that phrase. When we say prayer closet, we're getting that phrase from a verse like this one. Jesus tells us here to go into our prayer closet when we pray. To go to that place, not necessarily even a literal physical place, But to that place, even if figurative, where the eyes of other people are not the focus. Where even the eyes of ourselves on ourselves 
is not the focus. This is the place where all that matters is focus on God and intimate communication with Him. This is the place where prayer is about transparent and authentic communion with God. In the words of Jesus here, we must always go to that secret place, that place where people's thoughts about us, where thoughts of our own reputation are not the focus, but rather where the Father, who is found in the secret place, is our sole focus. Now, friends, I would argue that it's possible to be in this place that Jesus wants us to be in, whether we are praying in public or whether we are praying in private. In other words, we can be in this place where both of our eyes are firmly fixed on God in prayer and not the acclaim from others. We can be here whether we are praying in public or whether we are praying in private. I don't think this passage is saying either pray in a literal public place or in a literal closed prayer room. I think it's rather about our inner selves and purifying our motives, whether we are praying publicly or privately. We can be in our prayer closet in either way. Because what's the prayer closet after all? It's that place where God is all where God is the sole focus of our communication and God's will is the sole focus of our desire. But now there's a subtle danger here, isn't there? There's a subtle danger here that we should discuss just very briefly. Even if we come to the place where we are praying in secret or when we are praying in our prayer closet, in the manner in which Jesus commends here. Even if we come to that place, the danger can be that we then say to ourselves, I'm so glad I'm not like the person who prays in public seeking the acclaim of people. See, we begin to see ourselves as spiritually superior to the guy who seeks the acclaim of people when he prays. See the danger? Or another subtle, related way in which sin can creep in, we can pray in secret, hoping then that we will be known as a person who prays in secret. Known as a person who is a great person of unseen prayer. You see how subtle this is? God help us. We need his help. Amen? As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, sin, listen to this, sin is something so terrible. Sin is something so insidious, friends, that it will not only follow us to the gates of heaven, but, if it were possible, into heaven itself in our praying. Lord have mercy. May we realize the subtle nature of sin, and then what do we do? We fly to Jesus Christ for His mercy. Amen? Amen. We can't do this on our own. 
Verse 7, more instruction now from Jesus on this issue of prayer. He says, listen to what he says here, verse 7. And when you pray, do not what? Heap up empty phrases in the English Standard Version. Heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, in this verse, there is a notorious difficulty, and it concerns the fact that we have an extremely rare Greek word here, the word batalogeo, which appears only in this verse in the entire New Testament, and then only very, very rarely in other uh, ancient Greek literature that is outside the New Testament. So then, it's hard for us to know precisely what this word meant. Now, on screen, again, is the English Standard Version, which translates this single Greek word with four English words, namely, heap up empty phrases. Do not heap up empty phrases in prayer. Other English versions have something like, do not keep on babbling when you pray, or... Do not use meaningless repetition in prayer. So it's hard for us to know exactly and precisely what Jesus is getting at here. Now, without going into all the various different possibilities for translation here and the reasons for all of those various possibilities, I have concluded for myself that perhaps the best way to translate this Greek word seems to be along the lines of mindless verbosity or a sort of thoughtless length in prayer. When you pray, don't engage in mindless verbosity or don't engage in a lengthy prayer that is thoughtless. Now we must point out here that Jesus himself prayed long prayers sometimes, right? Prayers that went all night. So length of prayers per se is not the issue. It's mindless or thoughtless lengthy praying that seems to be the issue here. As John Stott says, the root issue here seems to be, I love this, prayer with the mouth when the mind is not engaged. (laughs) Prayer with the mouth when the mind is not engaged. Have you ever prayed with the mouth when your mind was not engaged? I know I have. Uh, One example would be from my childhood days in the United Church. Every Sunday we prayed the Lord's Prayer out loud. But I tell you, more often than not, as a child, I was simply mouthing the words while I was thinking about playing Atari when I got home. So praying with the mouth when the mind is not engaged. Now, we notice in this verse that Jesus specifically, look at the verse, he specifically identifies the Gentiles who were people who were known to pray in a mindlessly verbose or thoughtless way. This is interesting. What Jesus may be referring to here is a habit, documented habit amongst the Gentiles of his time to address each and every one of their gods in prayer, just in case. 
And this would include their reigning emperor, who was considered a god. And the Gentiles addressed all these gods ponderously, with an overabundance of names and titles, thinking that they would really get the attention of the gods if they used each and every title uh, and name for the gods. So to give you an example of what this may have looked like, consider the following opening okay, from an actual decree that was issued by Galerius Caesar a little later in the 4th century. But it gives us an idea. It shows us how Galerius Caesar wanted to be known. Okay, And here's how it read. The Emperor Caesar, Galerius, Valerius, Maximanus, Invictus, Augustus, Pontifex Maximus, Germanicus Maximus, Egypticus Maximus, Phoebicus Maximus, Sarmenticus Maximus, and incidentally that last one was repeated five times, Persicus Maximus, repeated twice, Capricus Maximus, repeated six times, Armenicus Maximus, Medicus Maximus, Abendicus Maximus, holder of tribunal authority for the 20th time, emperor for the 19th, council for the 8th, pater patriae pro council. Now, did your mind wander a little bit when I read that? Mine did. It could very well be in verse 7 of our passage that Jesus is referring to such verbose, lengthy, flowery stuff from the Gentiles as an example of what not to do in prayer. Jesus says here, these Gentile types think or they imagine that they will be heard for their many words. Now, isn't this contemporary? (laughs) Because some of us might say to ourselves, well, if I pray long prayers with lots and lots of words, then God will hear me. Or, if I spend six hours in prayer instead of just one, then God will hear me and respond. Friends, we must not imagine that the reason that God will hear our prayers is because of the length of our prayers. Amen? Long-winded praying is no sure formula that guarantees that you will have God's ear. Why? Because God refuses to be impressed by the technique of our praying. The truth is that God hears our prayers, whether they are short or long, simply because God decides to hear them. Jesus says to us in verse 8, Do not be like these Gentiles who pray in this mindlessly lengthy way. Why? This is beautiful. For your Father, read it with me, knows what you need before you ask Him. Yes. Amen? I think Jesus here is thinking of Isaiah 65, 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, 
I will hear. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. It's not like God is sitting in heaven, ignorant of your need, until you come along and tell Him about your need. It's not like God is waiting in heaven until you can come along and fully persuade Him concerning what you need. No. He knows all about what you need. He, he knows much more about your need than you do before you even approach Him in prayer. And so then somebody is asking right now, okay then, well, why pray concerning my need? If God already knows about all my need from top to bottom before I get to praying about it, then why pray about it? And the best answer to that question that I've yet come across comes from John Calvin, who wrote as follows. And I want you to listen to this because I think it's bang on and very helpful. He said, Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to Him or of exciting Him to do His duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him. That they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom. In a word, says Calvin, they pray that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ has addressed us this morning, saying, When you pray, He's talking to you, okay? He's talking to me. Let's not look around at anybody else or think, oh, I wish so and so was here to hear this sermon. No. Look at yourself. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Are you like a hypocrite? Am I like a hypocrite? Let, G, let the word of Jesus Christ interpret you, and I'll let it do the same for me. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Much of this passage today has been about prohibition hasn't it? Jesus prohibiting a certain kind of self-focused praying. But then, yes, also encouraging us, hasn't he? Encouraging us toward a posture 
in prayer that he, as God in the flesh, desires from us. Now, next Sunday will be in verses 9 through 15, which is the model prayer of Jesus, which we know as the Lord's Prayer. For now, just a very few brief closing comments in summary of what Jesus has said to us today. What's the concern of Jesus in this passage? It is not about the place where we pray, either public or private. It's not about the place. It's rather about the manner in which we pray, our motives and our intent when we pray. And as it was last week, I want to encourage each of us this week, would you do this? Pray in your prayer time. Plead to God for a real self-forgetfulness. Would you do that? Pray that God would make that happen. Begin to pray that God would help you pray in a way that is truly focused on Him, on His person, on His will. Your will be done. Right? That's coming up. On His will, not on yours. On His desires, on His plan, and on His beauty. Pray that God would help your praying to become oblivious to impressing others gaining your own reputation, but focused instead on him. And please be very sure to fuel your prayers with a constant intake of the word of God. I close now with a paragraph from Paul Tripp's recent devotional book, Morning Mercies. I read this this week. It's the first paragraph of last Sunday's devotion, the March 3rd devotion. I think this lays out nicely the posture in prayer, the posture in prayer that God desires from each of us. Tripp says this, Prayer abandons independence. Prayer forsakes any thought that you can make it on your own. Prayer affirms dependency. Prayer acknowledges weakness. Amen? Prayer renounces assessments of capability. Prayer embraces the reality of failure. Prayer tells you that you are not the center. Prayer calls you to abandon your plan for the wiser plans of another. Prayer flows from a deep personal sense of need and runs toward God's abundant grace. With that, let's pray. <laughs> Would anyone like to volunteer to pray now after that sermon? Um, God is merciful. So let's seek him now in our weak and in our faltering way, and he will hear our prayers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, because we are fallen, selfish creatures, 
we assume that we know what pleases you in terms of our manner of praying. But then you come along in your word in a passage like this and you run some checkpoints on us in a redemptive way to bring us to a new place of benefit and of bringing glory to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your voice and your word and that your sheep hear your voice. We thank you that you have not left us alone to our own defenses and to our own uh, enterprises, Lord, but you have come broken through our hermetically sealed bubble where we can't figure out much of anything for ourselves and you have given us this divine word. You are the one who interprets us. You are the one who knows us. You are the one who is redeeming us. You are the one with whom we have to do. You are the one who deserves glory and praise and honor and our adoration. To you be the glory, Lord, not to us. So I pray for myself, and I pray for each and every person here the same thing, that you would, in your redemptive way, though it may be painful for us, this week, show us the places in us where we are self-centered, where we think we have everything figured out. And Lord, then move us to a place of worship, of dependence on you, of a recognition of our weakness so that we can access your strength and live in your power and live in your grace. Father, I pray these things in the mighty and in the powerful name of Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, for the Sermon on the Mount. These are not just words, but these are words that are spoken to us this day in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to grab us, arrest our hearts and minds, and move us from A to B, Lord. If we are too comfortable, disturb us into something better. I pray in the name of Jesus and for your sake. Amen. Now to you, from him who is and who was and who is to come, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, may grace and peace abound in your life. Amen.